You're listening to The Maniculum, pointing the finger at the Middle Ages. We bring you the choicest medieval nonsense, discuss and evaluate it, then pillage it for our own geeky purposes. Hello, listeners. We are back. I am your host, Zoe, a professional game developer, and I'm here with our co-host, Mac, a PhD candidate at Purdue University, and we are medievalists who teach you how to adapt medieval stories into TTRPGs, stories, novels, whatever else you have going on. We talk about them, we find weird things about them, cool things about them, and we play with them. That's basically what we do. And today we are jumping back into the Lay of Marie de France for some more weird French chivalric tales. But before we do that, we just want to mention a few cool things that we have for you. Those are our Discord. If you are not already part of our Discord, come join the party. It's got a bunch of cool channels. If you're not familiar with Discord, it's basically like a big chat group with different sub-channels. It's like a forum, but more fun. It's IRC, but with corporate branding. There we go. Yeah. I'm too young for that. That's not a good pitch, but that's accurate. Rip. It's fun. Come talk with people who like (laughs) the same things that you like, is the point. We have a link for that down below. Hopefully that's easy enough to figure out. I mean, you figured it out, Mac. That's true. I have largely figured it out. So if Mac can figure it out, you can figure it out. Yeah. So anyway, we've got a Discord. Come check that out. That's in our show notes. We also have all of our other sources, citations, and social media down there below. Our Instagram, our Mastodon, our... Do we call it Twitter? X or whatever the f*** Elon Musk is doing with it? I'm not calling it X. It's so dumb. It's so dumb. Anyway... Whatever the fuck the the thing is. I've seen people spelling it X-I-T-T-E-R, like Twitter, but with an X at the front. And then someone pointed out that in, like, pinyin, like, romanization of Chinese, the X is pronounced S-H. So that would be (laughs) shitter. Shitter. It is the shittier Twitter, so. Yeah. I think that comment made it more popular to spell it that way. I think so. Anyway, whatever that is, we have one of those. Basically... If you're looking for us, you can find us. We are there. Check us out. Reach out to us. We love hearing from you. And we also have our Patreon. So if you would like to help support the show, whether it's, you know, from $1, $5, $10, $20, whatever you want, that's there. So thank you very much to our existing patrons. You guys help keep the show running and help us keep doing what we do. All right. So with that, shall we jump into our Lay of Marie de France? Yes. Also, seriously, what was in the water in France in the Middle Ages? Because I've noticed that they are on another level of weird. The French in general or the medieval French? I don't know enough French people in the modern age. That's fair. So the the medieval French. The medieval French, I mean, I feel like everybody in in the Middle Ages is... Everybody's on something. Everybody's on something. But like, you know... French chivalric romance is just bizarre. It's very strange. But to be fair, there was the same thing that we had with Parzival as well. Percival. Percival is also French. It's also French. Yeah, but wasn't isn't there also like a weird German version? There is a German version. We have to compare yeah, it to see how weird the Parzival, German version. I think. Yeah. Yeah, yeah we should read that by um oh, I forget his name. It's got it's one of those German names with a Vaughn in the middle. I know it's like Eshram von Wolfenbach or something. Yeah, it's really fun. It's a fun German name. Wolfram von Eschenbach. 
But anyway. But yeah, we should read that sometime and compare. For those of you who are not familiar with the Breton Lays, or who are just jumping in for the first time into this episode, the Breton Lays of Marie de France have Celtic origins because the Breton people came from Britain before, like, the Angles and the Saxons and everybody came over to colonize England, modern-day England. One might say that those events coincided and were causally related. Yes, indeed. So anyway, they went down to Brittany, what is modern-day Brittany, and they carried these tales with them. They told these tales over and over, and Marie de France, who is... A Marie of France, she was probably a lady in Henry II's court. Could also have been an abbess, we don't actually know which Marie this was. But anyway, this Marie decided to write down some of these Breton lays. And so we get a lot of chivalric romance from this. There are a lot of old Celtic motifs that you'll recognize. There's some fairy lore going on. It kind of turned into Arthuriana eventually. But that's essentially what the lays, or lay for the French plural of Marie de France, are, in short. Yeah, and it's probably reductive for us to call them French because they're Celtic-inspired stories being told in England but written in French. Yes, and it's a weird But there's a distinct Frenchness to them. Yes. It's Anglo-Norman. Yeah, so it's also a, a weird French, and these are specifically Breton stories. They're not, you know, like... Parisian stories or South France French stories like these are specifically Breton stories and I feel like that's worth calling out because even in the Middle Ages you didn't really have nations like nations were just kind of becoming a thing like you had the Empire of Rome and you've got the East and West Roman empires and then the Byzantine Empire and all of this you know all these giant conglomerate things. But within that, you have a bunch of different ethnic groups, people groups, cultures. And eventually, as these empires broke apart, you still had these groups of people. And then eventually, you start to get nations. But like, for instance, the nation of Germany is technically younger than the United States of America. But the German Mm -hmm. people have been around longer than the American people for, you know, those reasons. Hmm. Uh, Depends on how you define American. Yeah, that's a sticky one. I don't do American studies. I'm not touching that. Well, I was more thinking if you include Native American, a lot of those cultures have been around way longer than Germany. Oh, 100%. 100%. I try to go by their specific tribal names, though. That's true. Good point. Yeah. U.S. American, whatever, modern American whatever you want to call that conglomerate, which is I not kind a of like U.S. American. Yeah. It's easy to write down. Yeah, that's true. And it does distinguish us from the other countries also in America. True. Which I feel like is polite to them to not pretend like American just means us. That's true. That's very like, true. Like, it's a d- move to, for, that we do that. Yeah. And we shouldn't. Plus, there's there's North America, Central, and South America. So there's a lot of Americans, technically. But, but the point is, anyway. cultures and ethnicities were varied within these political units, much in the same way they are today, but with the difference that today you're legally required to care which political unit you <laughs> live in. Whereas back then, they didn't really have the infrastructure for that. Yeah. Yeah, you couldn't really. You cared more about your ethnic group, you know, than your national group, let's say. Yeah, or your or your religion or your local culture or like yeah. like no no one was going around going like 
Yes, I am a Frenchman because I love the French king. Like, okay, maybe some people were, but they were assholes. Yeah, you know, you identified with the, like, I'm from Brittany, I'm Breton, you know, or like different parts of England where you're from. Did you know, actually, that I just said I wasn't a U.S. scholar? I'm not, but this is a fun fact. Before, like, even after the Constitution was formulated, the colonies didn't really consider themselves, like, English anymore, and they didn't consider themselves American for a while. It was very much, I am of this state. Like, it was your state identity, rather than, like, yes, I'm a U.S. American. It was like, oh, no, I'm a Georgian. I'm a Virginian. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So, anyway, fun American fact there. But anyway, to the actual point here, there are 12 of these lays written down, and we've gone through several of them. And now I'm trying to pick one. Do you want to do Elie Duc or La France? I feel like La France, it's La France. I just did this. I feel like La France is pretty good. A little bit dramatic. There's lots of romance. These are all romantic stories. Anyway, let's do La France, which is spelled L-E space F-R-E-S-N-E. It looks like oh. Fresne. Fresne. Le Fresno. Yes, Le Fresno. Where the night crawlers are. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, we're going to do that one. It's technically Le Fran, because I did Google that before we started, because I wanted to make sure I was going to get it right, because I was like, this is I like that you, you started by asking, like, which do you want to do, and then seemed to realize that I didn't have any information besides yeah. two proper nouns, and so you just picked one. I did. <laughs> Without at any point pausing. I mean, there's that one, and and then the other one that I really wanted to do was there's Ellie Duke. I mean, I wasn't complaining. I'm that's happy to fair. let you pick one. Like okay. that's that's fine. I just figure there's a lot of drama in this one. And I feel like I feel like that's suitable for today. All right. So anyway, I have to find it over in this one because the names change, which is frustrating between different versions. So I have to figure out which one this is. Give me a second. That's the third one. Yeah, the third one. Yeah, a lot of medieval authors didn't actually give their stories titles. Yeah. Like, they all have titles now, but those are just convention. Like, Beowulf does not have a title page. We just called it that because that's the main character's name. Yep. And some other translations actually give it different names. I feel like these are out of order. Well... No, you're out of order. Well, I'm trying to figure it out, because La France means the ash tree, but in my Gutenberg one, there's the ash tree. Okay, so in the Gutenberg one that will be in our citations, this is number nine. In what is listed on Wikipedia, this is the third one. So it's going to be titled probably either The Lay of the Ash Tree or La France, looking like Le Fresno. For those of you following along. <laughs> I've noticed that Wikipedia does that. It, if stories are numbered instead of titled, it'll often not mention that this varies from edition to edition. Because, like, whoever wrote the article just looked at whatever edition they had on hand and used that. Yep. And didn't, like... Check. Compare and contrast. Yeah. I've found the same thing when I see Wikipedia articles that reference the Gesta Romanorum. They're often using numbers that are not the same as my edition. Yes, this is one problem. This is another huge problem with medieval works is that there are a lot of different editions and things are numbered differently. I had this problem when I was going through the history of the Kings of Britain for my dissertation. There are two different translations in manuscripts that I was referencing and they're numbered differently. And so I was trying to find like in my modern 
transcribed Latin text versus the manuscript where things matched up and where they were backwards. Because I was trying to figure out how the different translations differed when it came to notations that the monks made in the marginalia. Mm -hmm. But I had to like figure out first which different places they were notating. And it was horribly frustrating, especially because there was a scribal error. And so instead of writing six, he wrote four again. And so I spent a good like three or four hours trying to figure out like, where is this motherfucking book? in this manuscript and it was a scribal error and I was so mad and I have never wanted a time machine more in my life. I'm assuming that these were Roman numerals where the difference between six and four is just you switch the V and the I. Correct. Yes. It was very, very frustrating. Not an uncommon mistake. No, no, not at all. And you can't blame him, but I really wanted to. I would like to shout out PJC Fields edition of Lamort D'Arthur for trying to address this problem, if you flip through his edition, you will find that each page has at the top, near the page numbers, a notation indicating what page in the Winchester manuscript this is, and what book and chapter in Caxton's edition this is. That is amazing. It's beautiful. He did not have to do that, and he really went the extra mile. That's incredible. Yeah. 10 out of it's 10. It's a great edition. Highly recommended. Beautiful. Okay. To the lay of the ash tree. <laughs> now I will tell you the lay of the ash tree according to the story that I know. In ancient days there dwelt two knights in Brittany, who were neighbors and close friends. These two lords were brave and worthy gentlemen, rich in good and lands, and near both in heart and home. So alike in both heart, that is to say attitude, and home, they were neighbors. They lived close by to each other. Yeah. Moreover, each was wedded to a dame. One of these ladies was with child, and when her time was come, she was delivered of two boys. Her husband was happy and content with this. For the joy that was his, he sent messages to his neighbor, telling that his wife had brought forth two sons, and praying that one of them might be christened with his name. So one of these two, like one of the twins would be named the neighbor's name. Right. Name your son after your best friend. Yeah. Unusual, but like very kind gesture. Isn't that unusual? I feel like there are a lot of people who still do that. I feel like you're more likely to, to do it for a family member than a friend. True. So if you name your child after your friend, it's more like saying, you're family to me. Yeah, very close kinship. The rich man, that is to say the neighbor, was at meat when the messenger came to him. That is to say he was eating. This is one of those old phrases that sounds very, very strange to us, but was contemporarily very normal to a medieval audience. Mm-hmm. And also, it is the translator's fault, because remember, this is in French, so they probably did not use the phrase at meat. That's probably just the closest cognate, and the translator rolled with it. Of course he did. The servitor kneeled before the dais and told his message in his ear. The Lord thanked God for the happiness that had befallen his friend and bestowed a fair horse on the bringer of good tidings. I suppose that is just to get home. Yeah. Either. I really like this idea that, like, you and your neighbor kind of swap horses, you're like, ah, you know, just send him out with the other one. We'll let this one rest here for a while. That or this other guy literally ran to his neighbor's place and the guy just gave him a horse to go back with. Nice. Either way, it's a fun image. Also, it's giving us a sense of scale because I've, I've been thinking like, oh, they share a fence. But like, no, these are like two neighboring estates. Like you probably yes. do need a horse. Yes. These are both knights. So it's like when we're saying estate, we're probably talking like 
mansion and or castle with several feudal farms attached. Yeah. Like acres and acres of land, not just, you know, two big houses. Both alike in dignity. <laughs> Thank you, David. <laughs> nice, nice. All right. Thank you. His wife, sitting with her husband, heard the story of the messenger and smiled at this news. Proud she was, and sly, with an envious heart and rancorous tongue. She made no effort to bridle her lips, but spoke lightly before the servants of the house, and said, I marvel greatly that so reputable a man as our neighbor should publish his dishonor to my lord. It is a sh- Oh, Mac just got it. <laughs> uh-huh. It is a shameful thing for any wife to have two children at birth. We all know that no woman brings forth two at one bearing, except two husbands have aided her therein. That was in Sidrak and Bacchus. Yes. So, Mac, would you like to explain for our listeners who haven't figured this out, who haven't picked up on this, because it's worded strangely, what she's insinuating here? All right. So there was apparently a belief current in medieval times, like I said, it's in Sidrak and Bacchus, that... Check out that episode if you haven't. Yes. That, yes, it is possible for a woman to have more than one child at once, but each child requires a different uh, sexual encounter. Yes. Well, a different sperm. Each encounter only has enough sperm for one kid. Right. You have to have multiple sperm donors, shall we say, in order to have... quick succession. Yes, in order to have twins. It can't be like... You and your husband get it on twice in quick succession. No, it has to be two different people. Yeah, because he ne- he needs time to make more sperm. Yes, because clearly that's how that works. He doesn't he doesn't have another another child's worth ready to go immediately. Right. But yeah, so basically the wife is is saying, okay, if she, if she has twins, that means she's been sleeping around. And there's the additional implication that if you're naming this other kid after this other guy Mm -hmm. maybe you're naming that child after its father yes so she's insinuating something pretty bad and also interesting note here that this guy like this first knight would gladly share this information so that shows to us that not everybody believed this right at the time because it's silly yeah Her husband looked upon her in silence for a while, and when he spoke, it was to blame her very sternly or to chastise her. Wife, he said, be silent. It is better to be dumb than to utter such words as these. As you know well, there is not a breath to tarnish this lady's good name. That's dumb as in mute, listeners. Correct. But also, you know, it's better to be a fool than to say such things. I feel like both meanings apply, but yes, in this sense, it's better to be mute. Also, this this story is giving very Nyal Saga vibes. That's true. It's been a while since I read that one. Refresh my memory. Well, one of the drivers of the conflict is that Gunnar's wife is trying to sow discord between Gunnar and his best friend, Nyal. That's right. Yep. Hallgirth is the name of Gunnar's wife. I couldn't remember it at the time. Well, let's see if this lady gets her comeuppance. The folk of the house, who listened to these words, stored them in their hearts and told abroad the tale spoken by their lady. Very soon it was known throughout Brittany. Greatly was the lady blamed for her evil tongue, and not a woman who heard thereof, whether she were rich or poor, but who scorned her for her malice. So she's, she said these horrible things and everybody's like, oh, we all know that bitch was a gossip. They don't believe this lie that she's telling. 
Now, the servant who carried this message repeated to his lord what he had seen and heard. Passing heavy was that night, he's depressed, and did not know what to do. He doubted his own true wife, and suspected her all the more sorely because she had done nothing that was in any way amiss. So, ah yes, she's has not done a single thing to cause him doubt, and therefore he doubts her even more. Because clearly she's very good at hiding things. Apparently, that's what that displays. <laughs> so, despite everybody else, apparently, in all of Britney being like, we know that bitch is a gossip, <laughs> this guy, this original knight, is doubting his wife because of, you know, the lady neighbor's words. Well, I guess he's the only one to whom this is, like, an actual relevant concern. Yes. Like, to anyone else, it's like, that's probably nonsense in any way, why do I care? But to him, it's like, okay, that's my family. Maybe I should consider this. Mm -hmm. Yep. So I can see why he would think about it longer than other people. But yeah, he's absolutely going in the wrong direction. Yeah. The lady, who so foully slandered her fellow, fell with child in the same year. Her neighbor was avenged upon her, for when her term had come, she became the mother of two daughters. Sick at heart I was really was she... hoping she, it was going to be something ridiculous like septuplets. Oh, I wish. That would have been great. She was right sorrowful and lamented her evil case. Alas, she said, what shall I do, for I am dishonored for all my days. Shamed am I, it is the simple truth. When my lord and his kinfolk shall hear of what has chanced, they will never believe me a stainless wife. They will remember how I judged all women in my plight. They will recall how I said before my house that my neighbor, who could have not been doubly a mother, unless she had been first doubly a wife. Which is a great turn of phrase. Yeah, that is a good turn of phrase. I have the best reason now to know that I was wrong and I am caught in my own snare. She's like, I didn't cheat, but my, now my husband's going to think I cheated. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, she's the one who said that. Mm -hmm. So now everyone's going to assume that it's true for her. Yep. She who digs a pit for another cannot tell whether she may fall into the hole herself. Which is a great way of saying, like, you dug your own grave. Mm-hmm. If you wish to speak loudly concerning your neighbor, it is best to say nothing of him but praise. The only way to keep me from shame is that one of my children should die. It is a great sin, but I would rather trust to the mercy of God than suffer from scorn and reproach for the rest of my life. Alright, so she started out by, like, seeming like she was delivering aphorisms and, like, the moral of the story, and I yep. was half expecting it to just wrap up there. I know, you would think! But then, no, infanticide. Infanticide is the answer. So instead of, like going to her neighbor, apologizing, saying, hey, I was wrong. Now I've got to like, I've got to live with my own shame of not only my husband doubting me, but of everyone in Brittany knowing that I was a liar and like, you know, repenting and living. She's like, nope, nope. I can't have anybody know that I was wrong. She's doubling down and she's like, cool, I'm going to kill one of these kids. So the women about her comforted her as the best they might in this trouble because birth alone is traumatic enough. So I don't blame them for that. They told her frankly that they would not suffer such a wrong to be done since the slaying of a child was not reckoned a jest. I like that this... So she gave that whole like speech out loud yep. to like the, the women who were helping at the birth. Yes. And they're like, we're not doing it. We're not going to help you kill one of your kids. Like this is not happening. Take the shame, lady. It's fine. The lady had a maiden near her person whom she had long held and nourished. So like her best maiden friend. Mm -hmm. The damsel was a freeman's daughter and was greatly loved and cherished of her mistress or by her mistress. When she saw the lady's tears and heard the bitterness of her complaint, anguish went to her heart like a knife. She stooped over the lady, striving to bring her comfort. 
Lady, she said, take it not so to heart. Give over this grief, for all will yet be well. You shall deliver one of these children to me, and I will put her so far from you that you shall never see her again, nor no shame because of her. I will carry her safe and sound to the door of a church. There I will lay her down, and some honest man shall find her, and please God, will be at the cost of her nourishing. Well, that's better than killing the kid, but you are still abandoning it. Yes. However, it was fairly common during this period for women who had a child in shame, shall we say, this is in quotes, listeners, that, for instance, if a prostitute fell pregnant or a woman had an affair or, you know, a young woman got it on before she was married and she fell pregnant, she would deliver the child and then literally deliver the child in front of the doors of a church or a monastery or an abbey or whatever. And the church would raise that kid or somebody would come along and take care of that kid. That's kind of how the quote unquote adoption system went in this period. Similar practices with churches extend at least into the 20th century. Yeah. And don't look those up. They're bad places. They're very, very bad places. Also, side note, this woman was referred to as a freeman's daughter. And in case anyone, I think we've mentioned this before, but just in case anyone has forgotten, a freeman is basically someone who is neither a peasant nor a noble. That's that's pretty much the extent of it. Yeah. They're not part of the aristocracy, but they're also not in like, to serfdom. Land. Yeah. Yeah. And notice, listeners, that this is a common motif, particularly in folk tales. For those of you familiar with biblical literature, this is Moses's tale, essentially, is the firstborn of any Jew will be killed. So firstborn son, technically, I think. So we're going to set the baby in a basket, send it down the river, and then it gets picked up by a noble, literally Pharaoh's son. So this motif is very, very common. We've seen this before. We will definitely see it again. And you can bet your bottom dollar that this chick's going to come back when she's all grown up. Yeah, that's how stories work. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. All right. Great joy had the lady in these words. She promised the maiden that in recompense of her service, she would grant her such garudin as she would wish, which is a reward or recompense. How do you spell it? Oh, it's not I said it wrong. Gerudon. Gerudon? G-U-E-R-D-O-N. Okay. I've seen Gerdon. that word before. Yes. I don't think I ever knew what it meant or how to say it. Yes, so it comes from the Latin we dare donum, which is donum is gift and we dare. Oh, comes from the old high German we dare no, we dare lawn, which is repayment. So a repayment gift. So it's like, hey, thank you for helping me. Here's a thank you present. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I was going to say that we dare part. I was like, that's not Latin. That sounds like old English. So it's sort of it's kind it's two different languages smushed together into a word that then turned into French. As one does. As one does. The maiden took the babe, yet smiling in her sleep, and wrapped her in a linen cloth. Above this she set a piece of sanguine silk brought by the husband of the dame from a bazaar in Constantinople. It's bloody? What? No, like red. Oh, okay. Yes. Apparently, sanguine can also mean optimistic or positive, especially in a bad situation. I've never heard it used in that way. That's from the four humors thing. That's the kind of disposition you're supposed to have if blood is your dominant humor. That makes sense. Yeah, all, all those words, uh, sanguine, phlegmatic, melancholy, have kind of stuck around. Yeah, that's true. But most of them are pretty obscure. Everyone knows melancholy, but the other ones are kind of... Yeah. Choleric is the fourth one. Yes. I was trying to remember that. Yep. So I guess like red silk, red dyed silk. 
Yes, which comes all the way from Constantinople. Yes. Cool. Yeah. Who had silk because they had a silkworm heist. You can Google that later. What? That is so cool. China had a monopoly, and I don't have a source for this. It's just something I read somewhere, and I forget where. But apparently a couple people from the Eastern Roman Empire, like, stole and smuggled out some silkworms so Constantinople could establish its own silk industry. That's amazing. That reminds me of... It was either in Rome from Constantinople or a Constantinople like noble or emperor or something who was like, I want cinnamon. I want this spice because it's super expensive and I want to sell it here and make a profit or whatever. And when it gets here, he sees a ship full of wood and he doesn't realize it's cinnamon. And he's like, what is this? So he sets fire to it and he only realizes what it is when he smells the cinnamon burning. And, like, millions of dollars up in flames because he's like, this bunch of wood. What is this? He thought he got scammed. I like that story. I've never heard that story. Yeah, I. it's a wonderful image. I really like that image. And yes, listeners, cinnamon is bark. Yes, it is a bark. Delicious tree bark. Yeah. Okay, so anyway, with the silken lace, they bound a great ring to the child's arm. This ring was a fine gold, weighing an ounce, and set with garnets most precious. So... Mac, why are they doing this? Putting a ring on the child's arm? With the silk, yeah. I assume it's to signal to the abbess or whoever that this is an important child and should be treated well. Yes, number one. And number two, also to help pay for introductory costs, shall we say. Ah. So you can sell the ring. You can't, I don't know, like, you can't really sell the silk, but it's an indicator of wealth. It's saying this child is of noble birth. So if you're looking for a character backstory, that would be a cool one. All you have is your mother's ring and this little scrap of silk. And if you need to give a baby to a church, put some cash in the bassinet. True. But also don't do that. Yeah, maybe, maybe find a different way, but great for D&D. Letters were graven thereon so that those who found the maid might understand that she came from a good house. The damsel took the child and went out from the chamber. When the night was come and all was still, she left the town and sought the high road leading through the forest. She held on her way, clasping the baby to her breast, till from afar to her right hand she heard the howling of dogs and the crowing of cocks. She deemed that she was near a town, and went the lighter for the hope, directing her steps there once the noises came. Presently, the damsel entered in a fair city where there was an abbey, both great and rich. This abbey was worshipfully ordered, with many nuns in their office and degree, and the abbess in charge of all. The maiden gazed upon the mighty house and considered its towers and walls, and the church with its belfry. She went swiftly to the door, and setting the child upon the ground, kneeled humbly to make her prayer. Lord, she said, for the sake of thy holy name, if such be thy will, preserve this child from death. That's nice. That is nice. Also, when you said she was considering the walls, I had this immediate and very incorrect image of her, like, looking at the walls and, like, experimentally hefting the baby and, like, pitching it over. (laughs) Oh, I thought you were going to go, like, full Assassin's Creed. Like, she's going to set the walls and, like, stick the baby away. Like, some kind of, like, Santa baby. (laughs) (laughs) She could do that, too. But no, she's, she's like, this is a big abbey. This is a good place to drop off a child. Her petition ended, and the maiden looked about her and saw an ash tree planted to give shadow in a sunny place. It was a fair tree, thick and leafy, and was divided into four strong branches. 
The maiden took the child again in her arms and running to the ash, set her within the tree, which seems like a very bad place to put a child. You live in the tree now. (laughs) I guess. I hope someone finds you in all these leaves. There she left her, commending her to the care of God. And so she returned to her mistress and told her what she'd done. I gave her to a tree. (laughs) Just sad. I'm I'm picturing her coming back to the lady and delivering this news and the lady just going like, that's just my plan with extra steps. I mean, kind of. (laughs) Kind of. Yes. Like hide the baby in a tree is just a more complicated (laughs) method. To kill the baby? Yeah. 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 Now, in this abbey, there was a porter whose duty it was to open the doors of the church before folk came to hear the service of God. So a porter is basically this guy runs around carrying things so that presumably the nuns don't have to. And I guess opening doors. I think it's just a term in this context for like a general servant. Yeah, a servant guy. But yeah, I assume the reason he's called that is because one of his main duties would be to carry things. Yeah, And it's interesting that in this presumably female-run abbey. Now, mind you, like, this is run by an abbess, which is already weird. There are lots of abbesses. Hildegard was an abbess. Right, but you don't run, you don't get to run your own abbey, right? Like, there's always a male superior, technically. I feel like that really varies time to time and place to place. That's fair. Well, the weirder thing is that there's a dude who, like, works in the abbey. I mean, yeah, that is a little odd, but... I assume that the servants are going to be of mixed genders, because, like, they're not taking vows. That's true, but I guess I don't figure... I guess it depends on the order of, like, do you allow men inside the abbey? Yeah, there is this impulse to go, like, there should be no men in this women's space, because, like, they're supposed to be pure and chaste, and we can't allow dirty men to get in here and corrupt them. Yeah. that, That sounds like it would make sense. So... Maybe it's in, like, he he does, like, the church things and he delivers things from town, but that's about it. Like, he doesn't go beyond that threshold. Because in the church, everybody's allowed in the church. That's true. But you're not allowed in the convent. So we'll go with that. It is entirely possible that, like, the parts of of the abbey where the nuns actually live is nuns only. Yeah. All right. So this night, he rose at his accustomed hour, lighted the candles and lamps, rang the bells, set wide the doors. His eyes fell upon the silken stuff within the ash. He thought at first that some bold thief had hidden his spoil within the tree. He felt with his hand to discover what the heck it might be, and found it was a child. I like that this emphasizes <laughs> how bad a place this was to leave the kid, because yeah. if there hadn't been that brightly colored silk, no one would have noticed. It's a bad idea. Don't put children into trees. And so he took the babe, and going again into his house, called to his daughter, who was a widow, with an infant yet in the cradle. So, she's got... A kid of her own, and no husband. She lives with her dad. Pretty standard. And she's a widow, not a single mother. So, like, she had a husband, but he presumably died pretty recently if the child is still an infant. Presumably, yes. Daughter, he cried, get from bed at once. Light your candle and kindle the fire. I bring you a child whom I have found within our ash tree. Yeah, that's absolutely the way to to talk to a woman who's caying for an infant, is to shout at her to get out of bed and give her orders. (laughs) I hate it. That's a great plan. She doesn't need sleep. No, not at all. Surely she has plenty of energy and time. Yeah, like, to be fair, this guy just found, like, a newborn infant outside in the cold. So, like, I kind of get the urgency, but also, what a way to treat your daughter. Yeah, but also, 
He found the infant at a church. As we established, leaving the infant at a church is a standard thing. Mm -hmm. Instead of alerting the other people in the church, he's like, you know, my daughter likes the infant she already has. I bet she'd like another one. (laughs) Another baby. How convenient. Surely this won't be a burden on our house. Those don't cost that much, do they? Okay. The widow did according to her father's will. She kindled a fire and taking the babe, washed and cherished her in her need. Very certain she was when she saw that rich stuff of crimson samite. Type of cloth. Thank you. Oh, it's a different type of silk. That's cool. And the golden ring about the arm that the girl was come of an honorable race. Which I hate this translation. I hate this. Yep. Bad, bad phrasing. Bad phrasing. Terrible phrasing. But that was a fairly common phrase for a really long time that your extended family could be referred to as your race. Like it hadn't yet become... The meaning had not yet become specifically ethnicity. It was just like general heritage that could include just like what family you're from. Yep. Which I know because uh, the McGregor clan motto is royal is my race, which is a weird thing in the <laughs> in the modern era. It would be cool if it was like royal is my name. Like that would be cool. Or even family. But yeah, race is not a good call. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, the girl came from an honorable family. The next day, when the office was ended, that is to say, like, church, when when his work was kind of done, the porter prayed the the abbess that... What is with this phrasing? The porter prayed the abbess that he might have speech with her as she left the church. He's gonna go talk to the abbess. Yeah, in this weirdly archaic translation, they're using prayed to just mean, like, asked politely. Yeah. Or, yeah, begged. Yeah, that comes from a weird Latin thing. Oro can mean to pray or to beg because kind of the idea of praying is begging God for favors in a weird sense. Like it's an, yeah. it's a supplication, shall we say. And this usage was standard for a long time. Mm-hmm. Like if you go to medieval texts or early modern texts, even you often see phrases like I pray you, sir. Yeah. Or pray tell. Or pray tell. Yeah. And that's where the word prithy comes from. Mm hmm. Anyway, he related his story and told of finding this this child. The abbess bade him to fetch the child, dressed in such fashion as she was at her discovery. I'm glad he decided to report this instead of just deciding that the baby is his now. Yeah. Like, maybe, maybe you could use the church's resources for this one, my guy. Yeah, that might be a good idea. The abbess observed the infant closely and said that she would be at the cost of her nourishing and would cherish her as a sister's child. So she's going to come up in the church and take care of her. Mm-hmm. She commanded the porter strictly to forget that he took her from the ash. That is to say, like we don't say where we got her from. We just... Oh. No, sorry. Uh, finish your sentence. But I, after you have finished your sentence, I've just realized something. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah, she commanded the porter strictly to forget that he took her from the ash. In this manner, it chanced that the maiden was tended of the abbess. That is to say, she was brought up by the abbess. The lady considered the maid as her niece, and since she was taken from the ash, gave her the name of Fern. That is to say, Ash. Okay, so what I've realized. Yes. We were making fun of the porter for this. Yes. But it's actually a reasonable decision. Ah. Because... Who knows how long that baby's been there, right? And why they pointed out that that his daughter is a widow who already has an infant is that she's lactating so she can feed the baby and the baby probably needs food after being in the tree all night. Yes, 100%. So he's not just 
stealing the baby. He is making the reasonable call that the baby needs food, and that means you have to find a woman who has recently given birth. Correct. Which includes his daughter. Yes. Okay. I had not made that connection until, like, he brought the baby back to the Abbey, and I'm like, why is he doing this? Oh, he didn't want to keep the baby. No. That was not the plan. Yes. That, yes, absolutely. That's so fascinating. That's one of those, like, things that innately I'm like, yeah, of course, she's lactating. That I get, like, isn't innate to you. That's fun. No, I, ju- I just assumed when he took her, ba- her home, he was <laughs> like, I, I want a baby. That's mine now. Yeah, I, I, it hadn't made the connection that it was the baby needs food. Yep. Babies need a specific kind of food. Yep. So I need to take this baby to a specific person. Yeah, which is really interesting when you think about it that... I feel like some people, like even some people in this day and age would feel like, oh, yes, babies drink milk. I can just give the baby cow's milk, which no, you absolutely don't do that. It needs human milk. Like a a newborn baby needs mama's milk. And so it's interesting that he kind of he knows that and I think shows how integrated family life was in the Middle Ages when that's very innate for him as a man to realize this and understand this. Whereas I feel like a lot of like guys nowadays, they're not familiar with, for instance, female hormonal cycles or how periods work or like what a baby needs. And things are so separated, not just from a gender perspective, but also like, you know, you give birth in a hospital, not a house. Yeah. Typically, it's just interesting to see like that integrated family life kind of coming through. Yeah, that is, in many ways, that is something we've kind of lost. Yeah. And that's unfortunate. Yeah. I think home births are on the rise again and midwifery is on the rise again, which like I'm all for. But yeah, we've we've largely lost a lot of that. So it's, it's kind of yeah. cool to see here. Like I get the impulse where you're like, okay, you, you should be around medical professionals because this is something that yes. can go very wrong. But... Also, it is kind of, I guess, alienating that it all happens in hospitals now. Mm -hmm. Well, there's also different things about that. Like, typically, women historically have given birth kind of crouching or upright, at least, not lying down. Because you want gravity to help with that process. So, like... I assume someone was stationed to catch the baby. Yes, yes. (laughs) But, like, medieval birthing chairs are a thing. Like, that's, that's a pretty common thing. And so this idea that a woman is lying down to give birth is a modern thing that helps the physician more than it helps the woman, for instance. So that's like an interesting difference. Yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah. Before we move on, I do want to say that from what I've read in medieval medical texts, medieval men also did not understand female hormonal cycles not how the period at worked. all what, what, what was that book we went through the secrets of women the secrets oh of women yes oh my gosh yeah if you if you want to know how weird medieval medical texts concerning women were check out that episode it's pretty bad it's pretty yeah. rough that was one of our guest episodes i think it was with the people from my favorite manuscript yes yes it was yep or rather inside my favorite manuscript yep so check that one out but anyway Speaking of weird hormonal things, when Fren, Fren, I'm just going to call her Fren. That's right. what we're going with. Or we could call her Ash. I'll do that. I'll see if I can switch it because I like that. Anyway, when Ash came to that age in which a girl turns to a woman, probably when she got, got her period, which I guess is technically marrying age to them as well for the period, even though the average marrying age was like 24 for a woman. Anyway. 
Yeah, I, I feel like that was that's something that's not. I'm not sure how codified that is as compared to today. Like, I don't think I don't know. There were probably at least cultural rules about like when you become an adult and when it's appropriate to marry. But I don't know if there were like laws. That's yeah, something to look into. I'm not sure. Like, who knows? Like, it could have been two years after you get got your first period. You know, yeah. like. But it was never written down, so we don't know. Anyway. I bet it was written down somewhere. I'm going to try and... I'm not going to try and find it. That's a lot of research for, like, no reason. But listeners, try and find it. <laughs> I see we're outsourcing our research now. Yes. But yes, probably that's what the age when she becomes a woman, that's probably what that means, is yes, she's got her period. Yeah. Anyway, at that point, whatever cultural touchstone that was for them, there was no fair maiden in Brittany, nor so sweet a damsel. She was frank and open, that is to say, honest and open, but discreet in semblance and in speech, so she's also modest. She's honest and open with people, but she's also modest. To see her was to love her, which I just think that's a beautiful poetic phrase. I just want to, like, shout that one out. That one's cool. I, I can't hear it without thinking of that one early TNG episode. Which one? There's that one where, like, Data is, like, possessed by this old roboticist. Oh, no. Like he was dying and he put his personality into Data's brain. Oh, no. That's bad. And then Data gives the eulogy and he's like, to know him was to love him. Oof. And to love him was to know him. Come on, and so that's Data. what I thought of. <laughs> well, he couldn't help but He was possessed. That's true. All right. All right. Anyway, to see her was to love her and to prize her smile above the beauty of the world. Now at Dole, which new place... Oh, okay. New new location. Reminds me of Amundol, which is a Tolkien reference. So, hey, guess where Tolkien got it, the bastard. Now at Dole, there lived a lord of whom much good was spoken. I will tell you his name. I'm sure Tolkien got it from one of his conlangs. Dole? Yeah, because all of his place names are based on his constructed languages. And he doesn't seem to have made a lot of effort to compare them to real world anything, which is why mm. one of the famous locations is Mount Tuna. <laughs> well, there is that one because it's it's Cinderin or Quenya. I don't remember which dialect of Elvish it is. But no, Dole itself in Old English, I think just means um, a share in the use of land held in common. I could have I could have sworn that it just meant like hill or something. I think that's Tor. No, that's Celtic. Hmm. But yeah, dole in Old English is, is means like a division. Like that's where we get the phrase to oh, dole to out. to dole out. Yeah, that makes sense. Anyway. How do you spell this word? Let me try This and... one is D-O-L according to our translator. And then there's the added thing of, of this being from the French. So who freaking knows? Firefox is running very slowly. You know what? This isn't important. We're getting distracted. Yes. Anyway, point is, at Dole there lived a lord of whom much good was spoken. I will tell you his name. The folk of his country called him Buron. B-U-R-O-N. B-U-R- Okay. Buron. Not too bad. Not too bad. No. Could have been worse. Yeah. Could have been Boron. <laughs> That's so bad. <laughs> that would- yeah. That's the strong fifth element. Indeed. Boron. Anyway, the Lord heard speak of the maiden and began to love her for the sweetness men told of her. As he rode home from some tournament, he passed <laughs> near the convent and prayed to the abbess, like he went to the abbess and asked that he might look upon her niece, that is to say, the lady, the girl. 
Man, the phrase prayed to the abbess really sounds like these guys are doing idolatry. It's not even prayed to the abbess. It's just prayed the abbess. That helps. Does it? Because that just seems like they're praying upon the abbess. I guess, yeah. Anyway, he went to the abbess and asked to meet this young woman. I've heard she's great. Let me meet this teenager. Yes. That's normal. Well, it could be young woman. We don't technically know. That's true. We are just guessing. We don't know how old he is either, so. All right, yeah, fair, okay. I rescind my insinuation of creepiness. We're going to assume for the sake of this tale, unless we're told otherwise, that these two are of consenting age. And let's say fairly close age. Let's go with that. All right. Until told otherwise. Yes. Very fair he found her, sweetly schooled and fashioned, modest and courteous to all. If he might not win her to his love, he counted himself even more forlorn. This lord was at his wit's end, for he knew not what to do. He is so deeply in love, like, with this woman. Didn't they just meet? Yeah, but he's heard stories about her. You know, they talk in the courts. Is he already in love before they meet? Yes. Hmm. He went full Instagram stalker mode and already has this idea in his head of this woman. Questioning this man's judgment. Ditto. But also, that is a folklore thing. There are Mm -hmm. lots of fairy stories where, like, a prince sees a painting of a princess and falls in love with her. Yes. Which has got to suck if he sees an old painting and then then someone (laughs) has to be like, she died 200 years ago, my dude. Yeah. Sorry, bud. Sorry. Or, like, what a way to catfish a person. Yeah. You know? If he repaired often to the convent, that is to say, if he visited the convent often, the abbess would consider the cause of his comings, and he would never again see the maiden with his eyes. One thing only gave him a little hope. Should he endow the abbey of his wealth, he would make it his debtor forever. In return, he might ask for a little room where he might be able to abide to have their fellowship and, at times, withdraw himself from the world. This he did. Let's explain what's going on here, because there's there's a little bit going on. All right. First of all, he has now met her, right? Yes. Okay. Yes, so he they meet, he falls even more in love with her, and in his head he's like... I really, I really want to just meet her and spend time with her and, you know, eventually probably marry her. But as he keeps coming, the abbess is like, no, this is inappropriate. She's growing up to be a nun. None of this. Stop hanging around my novice. Yeah. It's weird. And mind you, this young woman is not fully a nun yet. She's a novice. She hasn't taken on these vows. So technically she's still eligible. I'm going to get out the precious stones and invoke the demons. <laughs> I've read Hildegard. I know she how to knows. Do she knows what's up. <laughs> you know, lick a sapphire or two. <laughs> and so the abbess decides like, no, you're not going to you're not going to see my niece anymore. And so he is going to basically indebt the abbey to himself. And this is fairly common. Abbeys need patronage because it takes a lot of money to run an abbey. There's a lot of people there. Usually it's got its own farm and garden and whatever. So he's going to give them a bunch of money. And in return, all he wants is his own little personal room where he can withdraw himself from the world and find fellowship with the others in the church and presumably the other nuns. Now, this is not a, like, he's not going for her directly. He's not like, "Ah, I'm gonna go hang out with the nuns. He's not doing this in a weird way. It's fairly common for nobles to say like, oh, yes, let me visit the abbey and go on a little like monk retreat, basically. He's going on a spiritual retreat. That's all he wants. It does kind of have the same vibes, though, of some rich guy 
donating to a university so they get a new building and he gets his dip son in. Yes, that is entirely also what is happening. It's both. So just because it's common doesn't mean that he's doing it in good faith. So he gave richly of his goods to the abbey, and often in return he went to the convent, but for other reasons than penance and peace. He besought the maiden with prayers and promises, persuaded her to set upon him her love, basically to love each other. When this lord was assured that she loved him, on a certain day he reasoned with her in this manner. As soon as you said he prayed to set what was it? He prayed her to set upon him her love? Persuaded her to set upon him her love. Yeah, I was thinking like, you know, in the vocabulary of courtly love, that's that's asking for sex. He's asking for sex. He's asking for sex, yes. Fair friend, said he, since you have given me your love, ooh, come <laughs> with me where I can cherish you before all the world. You know as well as I that if your aunt should perceive our friendship, she would be passing angry and grieve beyond measure. If my counsel seems good to you, let us flee together. You with me and I with you. Certainly, you shall never have cause to regret your trust, and of my riches you shall have the half. So this is a really good offer, to be fair. True. I would not personally trust a rich guy who bought a room in an abbey explicitly to seduce a novice, but, you know... As we covered in Lanval, if someone's offering you like a sugar baby kind of thing, you might as well go with it. And you also have to realize that women have very few options in this period. So, hmm, do I really want to grow up in this abbey, live my entire life in this abbey when, hey, this guy is giving me sex and he's offering me riches and he's offering me a way out of here? That's a really good deal. That's a really good deal to a young woman who wants out. Yes, I can see that. I don't know. Personally, I think life in an abbey sounds nice, but that's just me and my hermit-like tendencies. <laughs> You're not a young hormonal woman. <laughs> Fair. I am not. I am not that. All right. So when she who loved so fondly heard these words, she granted of her tenderness what it pleased him to have and followed after where he would. They f***ed. She went with him and they also f***ed more. Ash fled to her lover's castle, carrying with her that silken cloth and ring, which might do her a service on a day. That is to say, foreshadowing here, this is going to come back. It's a special tool that will help us later. <laughs> I like the uh, use of on a day to mean in the future. Yes, on a day, a certain day. On a day. And this comes from the Latin where you would use the word kind of, you say one to mean like, one of a kind or a certain or just a man like it just means yeah. in the future or later or a certain guy it's just like our certain emperor sort of a deal yeah yeah some guy yeah in the future it's just kind of a general later these the abbess had given her again telling her how one morning at prime she was found upon the ash this ring and samite her only wealth since she was not actually her niece Right carefully had Ash guarded this treasure from that hour forward. She shut them closely in a little chest, and this coffret she bore within her flight, for she would neither lose them nor forget. I thought, no, wait, okay, hold on, hold on. I was remembering that that was supposed to be a secret, but then I realized she didn't say, don't tell her. She told the porter to forget about it. Yes, yes, to protect, to protect Ash. Right, so it's not don't tell Ash, it's don't spread it around to other people. Correct, yeah. Because she's, she's trying to save this young woman a life of, you're probably a bastard kid, you're an orphan, you're whatever, you know? Because even though she's not a bastard, 
it would be presumed that she's a child born out of wedlock. Right. Although, like, are there better assumptions that someone would make about a child who's being raised by nuns? Yeah, I mean, you could say that she's a family member of the abbess, a noble who was given to the house to be raised there or whatever. But here's the thing, you would have a family name attached with that. It wouldn't be shameful. But she has no family name. She has no identifying anything. And so the abbess says, you're my niece, to protect her. Okay, yeah, you know what, that makes sense. I don't know why I questioned it. Yeah, okay. Now, there's two ways we can read this, remember? We can read this as, like, the guy is wooing her, and this is all consensual, and she, like, actually loves him. Or there's the, you're my only ticket out of here, and he's pressuring her. I'm inclined to go with the consensual route, because it's a fairy tale, and it's I think that's what the author intends. Yeah, so... Let's just say that she's hiding this desperate secret from her lover and she wants this beautiful life and this is her only way out, but she's hiding this horrible secret. So anyway, there we go. The Lord with whom the maiden fled loved and cherished her very dearly. Of all the men and servants of his house, there were none, either great or small, but who loved and honored her for her simplicity. That makes me feel like they think she's dumb or like simple. I feel like that's not what the word meant back then. But I feel like it means more like she's honorable or like she's she's not cunning. She's simple. She's honest. She's open. You know, I think it covers like the same stuff they did when they introduced her at first. Yeah. Like you said, she's honest. She's open. Probably also covers the fact that she's modest. Yes. Like she's not like going in for luxury. She prefers mm-hmm. simple things. Yeah. Like I think that's the kind of vibe we're supposed to get. She would have been a great nun. Yeah, she is honest, she is modest, she is the virtues you would expect from someone raised in a nunnery. Yep. They lived long together in love and content. So I'm saying now explicitly that the text is saying they're in love with each other, he's not being weird with her. Yes, and that sounds like a time skip, so we can assume that that everyone involved is definitely an adult now. Yes. Till the fair days had passed and trouble came upon this lord. So yes, definitely a time skip. The knights of his realm drew together and many a time urged that he should put away his friend and wed with some rich gentlewoman. Okay, wait, are they not actually officially married or are they are these other people counseling a divorce? It's not clear. Okay. So either, like, it doesn't say that they got married. So they just live together, I guess. And he's like, you need to get married to, to an actual noble. Like, who knows what this, like, this is an abbess's niece, whatever. I mean, I guess that's pretty standard in, like, European noble circles, is that a marriage is for political purposes, Mm -hmm. and that's completely separate from who you're, like, dating. Yes. Like, John of Gaunt, whom we talked about in the Peasants' Revolt, Mm -hmm. he had three wives. The first was a woman who was also a noble. By all accounts, they actually were in love. Chaucer wrote a whole poem about it. It's very sweet. Then he had... A second, apparently more political marriage with a noblewoman. And while that marriage was going on, the whole time he was involved with a like long-term mistress. And she yeah. became his third wife after his second wife died. And he was like, well, I don't need to do political stuff. I'm just going to marry the woman I've been basically dating for decades. Yep. Pretty standard. So, like, I feel like that's just something that nobles would do. Yes. Is they'd have a love life and a marriage that are separate. Yeah. Especially once we get into, like, for instance, the Louis, like, in the, I guess it would be 
later Renaissance Enlightenment period, like, it's fairly mm-hmm. well known that, like, yeah, you know, the king would have his wife, but he'd also have his mistresses. Like, eh, pretty standard stuff. Yeah. Yeah, that was, um, who's the who's the one I'm thinking of? She's, she's got a hairstyle named after Pompadour. Her. Yeah, Madame de Pompadour. Yep. Was she also a Marie? Or am I thinking of... I mean, she's French. She's a woman. Madame... She's probably a Marie. Okay, hang on. Oh, no. Jean-Antoinette Poisson, Duchess de Pompadour. Yeah. Poisson is French for fish. Poisson. Hmm. There you go. So anyway, her too. All right, Jeannie Fish. Yeah, Jean Antoinette Fish. <laughs> or I guess Fish Fisher? Annie Jean Fish. Oh, boy. They would be joyous if a son were born to come after his fief and heritage. So it's also notable here that they are regulating their sex life so well that I guess she never got pregnant. Ash never got pregnant. Yeah, that is impressive. Yeah. So good to know. Good to know. The peril was too great to suffer that if he remained a bachelor, he would be without an heir. Nevermore would they hold him as a lord or serve him with good heart if he would not do according to their will. Okay, you know what? That is actually a fair thing. He needs a legitimate heir because, like, otherwise there'll be a power vacuum. Yep. That's a problem. Yep. And he can't have a legitimate heir with someone he's not married to. And so he needs to get married. And they would like him to do what people in his status are supposed to do and marry for political reasons. Yes. So marry a noblewoman rather than this abbess's niece. This sounds weird to modern ears, but this is basically his job. Yeah, it's absolutely his job. So he's like, all right, who do you want me to marry? And they said, sir, there is a lord in these parts privy to our council who has but one child, a maid, his only heir. Broad lands he will give as her dowry. This damsel's name is, oh shoot, I didn't look this one up. C-O-U-D-R-E. I don't know how to say that. Codre? I'm gonna, hang on, I'm gonna Google. I'm not even gonna anglicize it because it's gonna sound like I'm saying something rude. Coudre. Huh. I mean sewing. That's not as good a name to bestow yeah. on someone as Ash, so I think we just have to call her Kudra. Yeah, Kudra. All right. Anyway, this damsel's name was Kudra. I'm going to call her Kud. I'm assuming all the listeners have picked up on where this plot is going. Good for you. Yes. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> folk tales do not like hold to surprises. <laughs> you know where they're going, and you're here for the drama of them. That's how folk stories work. Yes. In all this country, there is none so fair. Be advised. Oh boy, throw away the ash rod you carry and take the hazel as your staff. The ash is a barren stock, but the hazel is thick with nuts and delight. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. Wow. Why is she a hazel? Because she's got nuts and delight. Oh, is that what it says? Oh, no, coudre means hazel, so we'll call her hazel. Okay. So this is a play on words. Fren in the French means ash, and coudre means hazel. Is that the tree she was left in as a child? I don't know, man! So they're saying, throw away the ash rod, so get rid of ash and take the hazel. Which is what, again? Huh? Why is the hazel good? The ash is (laughs) of barren stock. But the hazel is thick with nuts and delight. (laughs) That really is fantastic. That's so bad. You know, I wonder if after the maiden came back and said, like, I left your daughter in a tree, the lady was like, that's such a good idea. My (laughs) remaining daughter will also live in a tree. Yeah, we'll stick stick her in a hazel tree, I guess. But, like, we'll feed her, but she'll live in the tree. She'll live in the tree. She gets her own tree house. Oh, boy. 
As soon as she's old enough to build it. Yeah. So, Buron goes and asks for the lady's hand in marriage, and her father and kin betrothed her to the lord. Alas, it was hid from all that these two were the twin sisters. No! Who could have expected this? And somehow, no one involved noticed that they were both played by Lindsay Lohan. It was Ash's lot to be doubly abandoned and to see her lover become her sister's husband. When she learned that her friend purposed to taking himself a wife, she made no outcry against his falseness. She continued to serve her lord faithfully and was diligent in the business of his house. The sergeant and varlet were marvelously wrathful when they knew that she must go amongst them. So they wanted her out of the house. And she's like, no, no, it's fine. I'll, I'll like serve the house. On the day appointed for marriage, Buran bade his friends and acquaintances to the feast. Together with these came the archbishop and those of Dole who held him in their land, so who are a part of the land. His betrothed was brought to his home by her mother. Great dread had the mother because of Ash, for she knew of the love that the Lord bore the maiden and feared lest her daughter should be a stranger in her own hall. So she, she still does not realize that Ash is her daughter. She just knows there's another woman in the house. Right, and she's worried about the dynamics between wife and mistress because, as we mentioned, that was a thing and it would be possible for the mistress to have a higher social standing within the household than the wife, mm -hmm. and the mother does not want that for Hazel. Right. So she spoke to her son-in-law, counseling him to send Ash from the house and to find her an honest man for her husband. Thus, there would be quittance between them. So, like, stop it. Stop f***ing. Go find her a different boy. Yeah. There's a whole village full of them. Yeah. Pick one. Very splendid was the feast. Whist all was myth and jollity, the damsel visited the chambers, to see that each was ordered to her lord's pleasure. She hid the torment in her heart, and seemed neither troubled nor downcast. She compassed the bride with every fair observance, and waited upon her right daintily. Now, I'm gonna assume that these are not identical twins. We're gonna assume that, I think, yeah. But then again, as established, knights are knights face blind. Are, I was gonna say, knights are face blind, so they could be... <laughs> Ash's courage was marvelous to that company of lords and ladies who observed her curiously. The mother of the bride regarded her also and praised her privily. She said aloud that she had known the sweetness of this lady, and she would not have taken her lover from her nor spoiled her life for the sake of the bride. So she's like, too bad this had to happen this way. Mm -hmm. That night being come, the damsel entered in the bridal chamber into the deck of the bed against her lord. She put off her mantle and calling the chamberlains showed them how their master loved to lie. What? Yes. Sorry, before we talk about how the master loves to lie. <laughs> what part of the bed is the deck? The the foot of the bed. Okay. Yes. Are you sure or are you guessing? That's my best guess. Okay. Yeah, it does it's not clear. Hang on. Okay. Maybe he just has like a porch attached to his bed. It might just be, like, the base of the bed, because you'd have to, you know, stuff it, restuff the mattress, and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. You know, so, I don't know, I'm, I'm not quite sure, but okay. part of the bed. Probably not important. Yeah. His bed being softly arrayed, a coverlet was spread upon linen sheets. Ash looked upon the coverlet. In her eyes, it showed too mean a garnishing for so fair a lord. She turned it over in her mind, and going to her coffer, she took therefrom that rich stuff of sanguine silk and set it on the couch. This she did not only in honor of her friend, that is to say, the lord, but that the archbishop might not despise the house when he blessed the marriage bed according to the rite. 
So essentially, I guess they traveled for this and she doesn't think the bed is that nice and he deserves something better. So she takes basically this like silken scarf and lays it at the bed to make it look nicer. Right. And it's the silken scarf that she's been carrying around her whole life. When all was ready, the mother carried the bride to that chamber where she should lie to disarray her for the night. Oh, also, it should be noted that the swapping between bed and couch there is not unusual. Oh, That's just, yes. Those things are not clearly differentiated. Yep. Looking upon the bed, she marked the silken coverlet, for she had never seen so rich a cloth, except for only that in which she had wrapped her own child. When she remembered this, her heart turned to water. She summoned the chamberlain. I like that phrase. That's a good phrase. I've never heard that before. Her heart turned to water. But it's so evocatively accurate, because, like, when you have that moment where you're like, oh, shit, it's stuff so fucked up. Like, that's what it feels yeah. like. Yeah. It's like dripping down through your ribcage. Yeah. That's a cool visual, too. Tell me in good faith where this garniture was found, she said. Which, garniture, what a, what a word. Yeah, that's good. Lady, I shall tell you what I know. Our damsel spread it on the bed because this docile is richer than the coverlet that was there before. And docile is specifically the cloth hung behind an altar in a church or at the sides of a chancel or an ornamental cloth for covering like the back of the seat. So it's like, you know, what are they called? Well, I guess it's a docile, but the things on the bed <laughs> that you put at the foot of the bed to like make it look pretty. You, the bed skirt? Yeah. Well, not the skirt, not like at the base of the bed. Oh, okay. But like, you know, when you go to a hotel, sometimes they have like a, they have a docile, I guess. We still do this is my point. Anyway, that's your word for the day, docile. How do you spell it? D-O-S-S-A-L. All right. The lady called for the damsel. Ash came in in haste, being yet without her mantle. That is to say, like, I guess she's in her nightgown or something. Like, she's not... She's not fully dressed. And now we get a weird phrase, but it makes sense with a little explanation. All the mother moved within her as she plied her with questions. So, like, all her mothering instincts, like, bubble up because she's realizing that this is her daughter. Mm -hmm. Fair friend, hide not a whit from me. Tell me truly where this fair Samite was found. Whence it came, who gave it to you? Answer swiftly and tell me who bestowed upon you this cloth. The damsel answered, Lady, my aunt the abbess gave me this silken stuff and charged me to keep it carefully. At the same time, she gave me this ring, which those who put me forth had bound upon me. Fair friend, may I see this ring? Of course, my lady, I shall be pleased to show it. And so the lady looked closely upon the ring when it was brought to her. She again knew her own and the crimson samite flung upon the bed. There was no doubt in her mind. She knew and was persuaded that Ash was her very child. All the words were spoken and there was nothing more to hide. You are my daughter. Then, for reason of the pity that was hers, she fell to the ground and lay in a swoon. So she faints. She's like, gone. Which is a reasonable response. Because this kid was supposed to never show up again. Right. And she suddenly realized she's in a fairy tale. Mm -hmm. When the lady came again to herself, she sent for her husband, who all adread. Which, yep. great phrase. I'm writing that one Good down. Good word. Who all adread hastened to the chamber. She's like, my wife has fainted. He marveled the more sorely when his wife fell at his feet, embraced him closely, and entreated pardon for the evil she had done. So I guess she comes clean to her husband about having twins now. I mean, better late than never. I suppose. Knowing nothing of her trespass, he said, Wife, what is this? Between you and me, there is nothing to call for forgiveness. Pardon you for whatever fault you please. <laughs> Tell me <laughs> what the heck is going on. Husband, my offense is so black that you had better give me absolution before I tell you the sin. 
Which, like, he already did, babe, you know? Yeah, also, I that's not even how that's supposed to work, but also he already did. Yeah, he already did, you know? Which, like, a strong marriage, though. Yeah. Like, 10 out of 10. At least on his part, apparently, she stole the kid, so I'm not sure whether she's holding up her end of it. True. A long time ago, by some reason of lightness and malice, I spoke evil of my neighbor when she bore two sons at birth. I afterwards fell into the very pit that I had dug. Though I told you I was delivered of a daughter, in truth, I had two. One of these I wrapped in our stuff of Samite together with the ring you gave me the first time we met. Oh, <laughs> Wow. That's that ring. And caused her to be laid beside a church. I wonder if he ever asked her, hey, what happened to that ring? She, he probably did. Like, hey, you never wear that anymore. Where'd that go? Should I be concerned? Yeah. She's like, I lost it. Oh, no. It fell down the sink. Mm-hmm. The cloth of the ring I have found, and I have recognized our maid, our child, whom I had lost by my own folly. She is the very damsel, so fair and amiable to all, whom the knight so greatly loved. Now we have married the lord to her sister. The husband made answer, Wife, if your sin be double, our joy is manifold. Like, so, if you sin doubly, our joy is double as well. He seems more pleased that, like, we have two daughters? Yeah. Great, let's get to know this other What a guy! <laughs> Well, no wonder the other knight likes him so yeah. much. Very tenderly hath God dealt with us in giving us back our child. I am altogether joyous and content to have two daughters for one. Daughter, come to your father's side. The damsel rejoiced greatly to hear this story, and her father tarried no longer. But seeking his son-in-law, brought him to the archbishop and related the adventure. The knight knew such joy as was never yet told. The archbishop gave counsel on the morrow that he would part him and her who had joined together. So he's going to annul this marriage, get the other two together. We all It's all political. We know it's for political reasons. You know, it's fine. Yeah. Also, they hadn't consummated yet. Annulment's still fine. Mm -hmm. This was done, for in the morning he severed them, bed and board. Which is a great phrase. Yeah. Afterwards, he married Ash to her friend, that is to say the Lord, and her father accorded the damsel with a right good heart. So he's accepting her as his own. Her mother and sister were with her at the wedding, and for dowry her father gave her half of his heritage. When they returned to their own realm, they took Hazel, their daughter, with them. There she was granted to a lord of those parts, and rich was that feast. Hey dad, where's my dowry? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I still need to get married, dad. Um, <laughs> sorry. When this adventure was- this is an interesting phrase- Ruited abroad. Root what? Ruited abroad. B-R-U-I-T-E-D. Interesting. Yeah, I've never heard that one. We got so many good words. Yeah, we got to remember them for our segment. This comes from the old French bruit, which is noise from bruire to roar. So that's fun. Yeah. It can also be used as a noun. A bruit is a report or a rumor. I like that one. I'm writing that one down too. Anyway, when this adventure was bruited abroad and all the story, the lay of the ash tree was written and so-called from the lady named Ash. The end. Yay! Yay! So there we go. That's, that's the lay of the ash tree. All right. Odd at bits, but honestly, that's a sweet story. It is a sweet story. I wanted to do a fun one because there are others that are not so fun. Mm -hmm. But this one, this one's a good one. Yeah. Well, I want to know what bed and board means first. I think that's just the mattress and the supports. Support? Yeah. Apparently, it's also a film from 1970. It's a comedy drama. I think in modern parlance, 
bed is a place to sleep and board are the amenities like breakfast. Yes, it's the same as room and board. Yeah, but I don't know if that's what's being done here because I'm not sure it fits in context. That would still make sense. Like, room and board, they're both, they're separated. They're not living together. They're also not, you know, consummating anything. So, all right. What say you? There's not a whole lot of dialogue. Oh, wait, no. I know what the best dialogue is. Oh, no. What is it? The ash is a barren stock, but the (laughs) hazel is thick with nuts and delight. Yes! You're correct. You're entirely correct. That is our best dialogue. The the hazel. It's, It's so terrible it comes back around to being good. I feel like we ought to do like a, you know, like, like hazelnut spread. Thick with nuts and delight. Like, that ought to be a marketing thing. Honestly, Nutella could just use that as their slogan. Yeah. Thick with nuts and delight. (laughs) (laughs) I like it. I like it. All right. How can we use this in a game? Dang. I mean, to me, one of the best things to do would be to use this as a backstory for a PC. So your character grows up in the church, they're a cleric, whatever, and all they have is like this silken scarf and a ring. Yeah, it's very Anastasia. Yeah, instant quest, right? Your character art can go anywhere. And depending on how you and your GM, you know, play with this, maybe you do have a twin. Maybe there's an inheritance waiting for you. Maybe you and your mom never reconcile. Maybe like there's so much you could do with this. It's... There's so much going on. And you can play into the folktale. You can subvert the folktale. There's so much there just to just to play with. Yeah. So I think that's the most obvious one. Another thing, if you're doing a campaign with a lot of like noble intrigue and stuff, the dynamic between the Lord's wife and the Lord's mistress is probably something that you could work with. Yep. Like, decide how that works, which if either of them has greater favor within the house, how they feel about each other. Mm -hmm. Because, like, it's not going to be a secret. Mm -hmm. Or maybe as, like, another player character backstory, you're the outed mistress. Yeah. And you play as that character, you know, and you work through that of either getting revenge or forgiveness, coming to a new life, like, whatever you want to do there. I feel like that would actually be a great PC is like if Ash had actually been kicked mm-hmm. out and then decided to seek revenge. Yeah. I'm going to ruin that bitch's life. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty good. I have dropped an infant into my player's lap before. I was thinking that like giving the players an infant is yep. always a funny thing to do. Yep. I think we came up with the idea in an earlier episode that it could be like a cursed child in terms of like it's actually an imp or something or a changeling. I definitely remember having this conversation, yeah. yes. But you can also just give them a kid or a kid like with the scarf and with the ring. And it's like, okay, like we have to figure out who this kid belongs to or do they abandon the kid? And depending on how you play the game and time skips, like that kid could come back later mm. or there's just there's a lot you could do there. But Throwing your players a child can be really fun. Depends on your group, but it can be really fun. I think it would be interesting to throw it in like it's just set dressing. Mm-hmm. You know, like how, when, when your players are like traveling from one place to another, sometimes <laughs> you just like roll on a random table and go like, okay, and uh, and describe like some scene or another that they just happen to go past. 
And if you get in the habit of doing that, then one day you can just drop in like, you see a uh, a bit of silk hanging down from a tree. Ooh. And then they go investigate and they find a baby. It's a child. And now, <laughs> and now that's their problem. Ta-da! I think that's fantastic. I think it would really blindside them. Yeah. Oh, 100%. That's, that's a great one. The child. That's a good one. I'm going to write that. Quest start. Child. <laughs> also, I like the idea of children who are raised by or in trees. That's good, too. I also like, I don't know. I think that a kid growing up in a monastery is so fun for backstory or as an NPC interaction or whatever. And maybe this is like, because I wrote on Pentiment for too long, but that perspective of being so closed off from the world is super, super interesting to play with, especially because they can be very book learned, but not worldly. Mm -hmm. And I don't know. There's just fun things there. I like that one. All right. What else? Hmm. I feel like there's something to be done with the wife swap, like Freaky Friday twins vibe going on here. Like a quest where you have to like take out one one woman and, and help the other one get married to the real husband, like to the husband. Oh, okay. I don't know. I don't know. There might not be anything there, but it's kind I of I was a just funny confused idea. by your references because I had made a parent trap thing parent earlier. Parent trap. And then I was like, I think we're on the wrong Lindsay Lohan. It is the wrong movie. Lindsay Lohan, but parent <laughs> trap. Parent trap. I don't know. You could do maybe you do something there. Yeah, there's something there. Yeah. Oh, and I don't know how you would implement this, but the whole, like, you only have twins if you're sleeping with two different oh men. Oh my gosh. If you could make that, like, the lore of your world, I feel like you could generate some backstories with that. That could be really fun, too. Either as, like, a physical truth, or even just as, like, a wives' tale that people believe. Yeah, either way. Again. Whether it's true or not. Really cool character backstory moment. You'd be like, yeah, I was, you know, I was the twin. And, like, how are you going to determine which kid is which? Like, which one is your actual legitimate heir? That's a whole plot. I mean, I assume if they're actually twins from two different fathers, they'll look different. What if they're both, like, I don't know, white blonde guys with blue eyes? What if, what if this lady's got a type? True. And they're all face blind, so they can't tell anyway. They can't tell anyway. I don't know. I just feel like that would also be kind of fun in terms of, like, a certain birthmark or maybe you're the twin who actually like has the proof that you're the mm -hmm. heir. And so that's your quest is actually figure like figuring out how to claim your kingdom because your mom threw out the wrong kid. Oh, that would be interesting. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Also, I feel like this kind of structure lends itself very well to the evil twin plot. Mm -hmm. Ooh, 100%. 100%. I like it. Yeah. I like it. All right. How many ages hence shall this our lofty scene be acted over? In modern culture. I mean, only in that this is a fairly common folklore motif, so you can say that this, I don't think it originated here, but it's part of a tradition that continues into the modern era. Yeah, yeah, 100%. We see this folklore kind of come all the way through. We see the twins motif, the, oh my gosh, you're actually related to the noble, the king, the whatever. These are all very, mm. very common motifs. We should do a folklore, like a motif episode. If you figure out how to implement that, let me know. Yeah, I do. And I, and I will try and do it. All right. The Dungeon Master's Dictionary. 
terminology. I wrote down five. There are so many fun words. Okay, let's go through your list. I have Samite. Yep, for that silk. Which, all right, it's a particularly luxurious and heavy silk fabric. Wikipedia says, of a twill-type weave, sometimes including gold or silver thread. Ooh, so very fancy. Yes. The name comes from medieval Latin Samitum, from the Byzantine Greek Hexamitum, meaning six threads. If you look up Samite, there's some beautifully woven examples, by the way. Yeah, yeah, the, just the pictures on Wikipedia are very impressive. I like this Sasanian one. Yeah. Also, apparently there's a lot of Magic the Gathering cards. Oh, yeah, because Samite is a nationality? Ethnicity? Religion. In uh, Dominaria, which is where the original Magic the Gathering sets were set. Nice. Before they started switching to new planes every time. Yep, makes sense. Right on. And yes, I just know that off the top of my head, because I am a massive nerd. Hey, I have not played Magic, but my entire friend group does. All I know, what is it? Untap, upkeep, draw. Oh yeah, I got it. <laughs> That's all I know. What other words do we have? Sanguine. Oh, right, I had a list. Sanguine, I really like as like happy or optimistic, even in the face of something really hard. Yeah, that word has a lot of flexible uses. Sanguine can also mean ruddy in complexion it can just mean bloody it can mean blood colored but yeah the most common usage is happy and cheerful and optimistic which comes from the four humors thing yep i have written down also guerdon yes which is yeah it's it's a reward basically and i believe that zoe already broke down the etymology yep docile for either technically in the modern usage an ornamental cloth hung behind an altar or, I guess, the cool fabric cloth at, at the end of a bed, which I'm going to see if I can find. It's called a bed scarf, or a bed runner, or a partial coverlet. But I like docile. Yeah, none of those are very good. Yeah, docile. We'll go bed scarf sounds very goofy. <laughs> that's true. I like bruit. I guess it's yes, technically, that's also on my list. technically pronounced brute, I think. Brute, which is a rumor. Yep. Yeah, it can mean... Uh, Rumor, or it can mean a clamor and outcry. Because mm -hmm. it comes from the French noise. Yes, which is good. I like all a dread. Yes. That's just a fun one. That's one we we see a lot in chivalric romances, but sometimes it's super archaic and it's all a drod instead of a dread. Mm -hmm. This one sounds has weird. that nice I like medium. all a dread better. Yeah. Yeah. Bed and board. I like that better than room and board. That's just fun. Yes. Yeah. Because you can, you can throw that into a game. Ah, oh, bed and board is two silvers a piece. You know, something like that. Yeah, that works. Yeah, I've got one more. Coffret. Coffret. I think it's a little box. Yeah, it's a lockbox or like a coffer. Street smarts. Maybe don't put your children in trees. See, the problem is that that worked out for uh, I, It's not going to work out for everybody. <laughs> That's the problem with trying to take lessons from this, is that everyone's making bad decisions, but they all work out they fine. They all turn out, and that's the problem with folk tales, because you know you're in one. Okay, I've got one. Do not let the rich guy with his promised donations into your abbey slash university, because he will steal away your novices. Yes. And or make you try and teach his dipshit son. Yep, yep. That's a very good one. How about don't listen to really shitty rumors and don't gossip really 
shitty rumors that don't even make sense. Yeah, other people's sex lives are none of your business, yeah. I think, is a good lesson to take from Lay this. off. And of all things, twins? Really? That's that's what you're going to go with? All right. Other good lessons. Political marriages never last. This one lasted less than a day. That's true. If you want your child to be identifiable, give them something that makes them identifiable. But if you do not want your child to be identifiable, don't give them anything. Like... It's so fascinating to me that, like, they could have just left this child and it could have died, but they specifically wanted to ensure that it would be okay and respected. Like, bloodline is so important that they're like, we have to make sure that this kid is identifiable as being from a noble house. Yeah. Which is wild. Yeah. You don't want your kid, but if you do have to deal with the kid, everybody's going to know that they're from a good bloodline. Like, what? Like, 15 minutes ago, you wanted to kill this kid. And now you're giving it, like... Your fanciest Samite and your special ring. You could have just given it, given this girl, like, you know, passing material. But no, no. Or just a bag of money. Yeah, that too. That's not identifiable at all. Anyway, weird decisions being made there. Children love living in trees is the other lesson I have taken. (laughs) Apparently. Give your child to the trees. Yeah. Best moment. The plot's fairly sedate is the thing, so I'm not thinking of anything that, like, jumps out. Personally, I really like the moment where this lord has presumably just finished banging this novice, and he's like, babe, you've gotta come with me to my castle. (laughs) Like, they're in this private room that is, like, specifically for, like, his meditation or whatever, in this convent full of other women, and the abbess Mm -hmm. is just like, I hope he's enjoying his meditation. There's nothing suspicious going on. Where's Ash? Like, girl, how did you not figure this out? Like, that's my favorite moment in this entire thing. You know what? Yeah, yeah. I I feel like that is a moment that is almost not explicitly in the text. Yeah. But that's a very evocative one. And if you were to, like, film a retelling of it or something, that would have to be in it. It's one of those moments where if... The tale is trying to take itself so seriously, like, to a point. I don't honestly think that most of these tales take themselves seriously. That's, like, kind of mm-hmm. what folk tales do. But if if A24 were to make a film out of this, it would try to be this really serious moment of intimacy and whatever. But it's one of those moments where in the theater you'd be sitting there like, how did they not figure this out? Like, you'd be immediately taken out. Yeah. Because it's so f***ing funny. That's my favorite. Yeah. Yeah, I can't think of anything better because honestly, the only thing that jumps out at me is it's so funny that that woman put a baby in a tree. (laughs) (laughs) This maiden's like, I don't know, man. (laughs) Stick it up there, I guess. It's fine. The court. Who do you want in your court? Oh, right. I get to go first. Hmm. All right. So my problem here is that there aren't that many characters, and most of them are not people who are, like, that impressive. particularly useful to have around. Yeah. Most of them are not named. That's the other problem. Well, most of them seem like, I guess, nice people, but... You know what I do love? Only mm. women are named in this story. That's true. The... No, that's not true. Boudron. Ugh. Buron. Bu- okay, fine. Buron. But he- he's, like, named twice. The rest of the time he's called, like, friend or yeah. lord. But I... Okay. All right. But still, more women than men are named in the story. And I, you know, a win is a win. That's fair, yeah. 
All right. Uh, the person who seems the least objectionable to me is Ash. All right. Like she's very passive, but she seems like a good person and probably nice to have around. That's true. All right. Dang it! I wanted Ash. That's fine. Okay. Um, I guess Hazel doesn't do Jack, so not her. Not the mother. Boron's kind of weak-willed because he's like, fine, I guess I'll go and do a political marriage. So I want Ash's dad. Yeah, yeah, I was thinking about him too. He seems like a really solid guy. Also known as Neighbor Knight. Okay. And what is our rating? Let's see. Guijmar got an 8 across the board. Lanval got a 9. I have to admit, this one's not quite as exciting as the other two. I'm not quite as taken with it as I was by those two. I'm not sure if it's because it's less exciting or just because it's very similar to like stories I've read before, so it's right. also not very surprising. Like I'm like, okay, yeah, this is how that that's how that works. I know that I know that. I'm still gonna give it a solid eight for my part. Because I like it. It's short, it's understandable, you track what's going on, it's got enough drama that you're like, ooh. So I would read it again. I love this story, but it's not like an exceptional folklore tale. Yeah. Landfall still retire. It's a charming story. It's a nice fairy tale, and I like fairy tales. I don't think it's as good as the other two we've read, so I'm going to give it a seven. Fair. Punk, a messenger. I believe we are going to do correspondence instead. Oh, that's episode. right. We're going to do a correspondence. Okay. So this one is from an Instagram message I got from Ryan, um, and I will not state Ryan's last name for privacy reasons, but Ryan. Yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah. This is about our lesbian and pride episodes where I get into like Christian views on homosexuality and intolerances and tolerances and so on and so forth. And he suggested the Data Over Dogma podcast, which is actually a biblical podcast from a Christian perspective and a Christian worldview. However, they cover this specifically. That is to say, they cover early Christian views of homosexuality and how Paul writes about it and how Leviticus frames it and so on and so forth. And they get into the Greek and into the context of what is going on here. And it actually backs up and supports everything I was saying in that episode. So I'll link that episode in our show notes. And to read Ryan's message in full, I was just listening to your episode on the Christian turn against homosexuality. The Data Over Dogma podcast also just went deep into the biblical view on homosexual relationships, and I thought you might find it interesting. It includes the weird Greek word and clears up, and that's like arsenokoi or something, and I'll, I'll come back to that one. And I think it clears up some of the classical worldviews on what I call the great chain of topping, which seemed to constantly surprise <laughs> Mac. Which is, what a great phrase, and it's so true. <laughs> that is a good phrase, yeah. And so highlights from their episode, which definitely go listen to it, even if you're not a like Christian or a believer or whatever, it's still really interesting and it gives very clear points which you can use to talk to, let's just be frank here, bigots about what they think they know about biblical Christianity and sexuality. Which is to say in Leviticus, the only prohibition for women is about bestiality in terms of sexual conduct because that is the only time when they take an active role 
and they would be hmm. the quote unquote like topping the penetrative individual, which I thought was really interesting. I mean, they wouldn't though, technically, but they would be the instigator. They'd be the instigator. That's the word I was yeah. looking for. Yeah. Yeah. So that was really, really interesting to me. Leviticus explicitly does ban, prohibit homosexuality, but. As they point out, Leviticus also bans eating shellfish, wearing two different fabrics at the same time, you know, things like that. So it's also explicitly written to the Hebrew nation. So if you are not a practicing Jew and are a Christian, you know, most Christians don't abide by Levitical laws. So why cherry pick this one, I think is a, yeah. is a good point. I've never seen a Christian with side locks, so I have yeah. to assume that they're all ignoring that part of Leviticus. Yeah, 100%. So that's fun to point out. And then, yeah, also, this was interesting, too. There are some groups of practicing modern Jews who are totally fine with lesbianism, but are not fine with homosexual, like male homosexuality, because Levitical law prohibits male-on-male action, shall we say, but not women-on-women action. I guess if you're going to commit to a literal interpretation, that's kind of where you have to land. Yeah, but I, I thought that was really interesting. But also when it comes to how Paul writes about it, Paul also writes about how in Leviticus it talks about they turned over from their, quote, natural desires, which is not actually how it should be translated. It should be translated as useful desires, which is to say the natural utility of procreation. But Paul also writes as a celibate man, and he suggests, not specifically mandates, that, and this is when most people say, like, well, this is where he says, you know, you shouldn't, you know, be gay as a Christian. He actually writes about how if you have sexual urges and you cannot contain them, get married. But if you can contain them, do not get married. So... That's really interesting because Paul takes the stance that however you are when you come to being be a Christian is how you should stay. So if you are unmarried, you should not get married. If you're already married, fine, that's already been done, stay in that marriage. And that backs up this idea that early Christians in the second and third centuries that we talked about in the in the podcast said that even sex within marriage is a sin or that getting married is not, you know, an encouraged idea. And Paul actually agrees with that and basically says, like, no, you, you shouldn't have sex in marriage. Like, this is this is a bad desire, a primal desire. And he does not talk in terms of lust versus, like, good sexual desire. For him, all sexual desire is bad. So that's really, really interesting as well. Yeah, that kind of puts a new spin on his comment singular on homosexuality that also he hated heterosexual sex too yeah yeah paul's like be celibate is basically paul's quote-unquote mandate which is not actually a mandate so i thought that was really interesting his word that he makes up is to be the penetrative topping partner the other word that he is using can also be translated as effeminate which refers to in context the bottom partner so when it says like males don't be effeminate, what he, what it's actually saying is don't be a bottom. So if you are taking the bottom role in a heterosexual relationship, that is against Paul's doctrine. So, so Paul against strap-ons, one hundred percent. Yes. In addition to just sex and yes, yeah. So basically, for him, it's like Christians should be celibate, which is not something that Christ talks about at all. But anyway. 
Christians should be celibate. If you can't be celibate, you should have as little sex as needed in order to just be pure in thought and in mind in a married relationship. So if you have to get married, get married, have as little sex as possible, regardless of procreating. And then beyond that, don't be a bottom. And then also don't engage in homosexual sex. Like don't be a top in a queer relationship, but also don't be a bottom, period. I feel like this man has a lot of hangups. Yeah, I would agree. I have a lot of hangups with Paul in general, but essentially what the guys on Data Over Dogma say is we have thrown out so much of Paul's teaching and ideas about Christian sexuality that to specifically choose to take these verses to hate on queer brothers and sisters and even just queer people in general is to cherry pick and to choose hatred over actual Christian teaching because modern Christians have already thrown out so many things that Paul has taught, especially when it comes to sexuality, you know? So I think that's really, really interesting. And it's a it's a great listen. I listened to the entire episode because I wanted to make sure that, you know, if I'm going to recommend it, I want to represent it correctly. Mm-hmm. Great listen. I found it very fascinating just from a theological standpoint. So if you're interested in Christian theology, whether or not you are a believer, they have a great approach from a believer's standpoint and from a standpoint that values like, okay, what's the what does the actual text say? What is the actual context of the books and so on and so forth so 10 out of 10 i will link that below in the show notes check it out give them a listen it's pretty cool but yeah basically everything they said from a biblical standpoint lines up with what i was saying earlier which is it's not really about the fact that it's queer sex it's the fact that it's sex (laughs) yeah so there you go i feel like the general conception of like what christianity has to say about homosexuality comes from this trend we have in in the past fairly long time, actually, of interpreting the Bible the same way that, like, a dishonest scientist interprets the data. Yes, 100%. Like, you just pick the numbers you like and then build a narrative around it. 100%. Or build a narrative and then pick numbers that fit it. Yeah. Like, they're doing the same thing. Yeah, which is why, you know, it really frustrates me, and I don't think you can be an honest Christian if you don't actually, like, do your research and do at least a little bit of, like, quote unquote, what is usually taught in seminary, because you're not actually looking at the text in context and in understanding, you know? Yeah. And so in that way, like, I get where Muslims come from when they say, like, the Quran written in any other language than Arabic is not the Quran, it's not a holy text because it's been translated. And so much of that is is true when it comes to reading and understanding the Bible, because from context, from language, from this, that, the other thing, it, you know, so much has been muddled through translation and culture and context that you really do need at the very minimum a pastor who understands those things but that's not a priority for a lot of modern christians to be clear i'm speaking from an outsider perspective i'm not religious i don't have a dog in this particular hunt (laughs) i just find bigots annoying oh yeah annoying is probably not a strong enough word but you know what i mean yeah and like hey i'll say it you know i am a practicing christian and going back to these sources really, really matters to me. And so if there are people who are out there who disagree with me who are practicing Christians or those who are questioning or outside of the faith, I'm happy to talk about it. So there you go. All right. I can give that kind of, I don't know if it's a balanced perspective, but it's certainly a perspective that has come from like a fundamentalist. Like I, I've, I've gone through the gambit of being raised a Christian, shall we say. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, with that, 
Thank you so much to Ryan for sharing that. And I will link that below. And yeah, thank you all for coming on this weird and wonderful journey of the Lay of Marie de France. And don't hide your children in trees. Or do. It worked. Remember? Apparently, yeah. can't ignore that it worked out it just worked. fine. Yeah. Pick a good tree. We know at least that ashes work well. So take that. Even though they are a barren stock. And go forth, listeners, filled with nuts and delight. See you next time. Thank you for listening to the Maniculum Podcast. Please consider leaving a rating and review on iTunes to help support us. If you're interested in exclusive merch and continuous exclusive content, consider becoming a patron on Patreon. To see our sources and our notes, check out our blog on themaniculumpodcast.com. And hey, come get involved in our community. We have a Discord group that you can join, and you can find links to our server on our Facebook group, The Maniculum Podcast, our Twitter, at Maniculum, and our Instagram, at Podcast. Original music by Walker. Check out their project, Sugar Glass, on Spotify. I have dropped an infant.